Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Welcome to the Inside Carolina Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. We are on the beat live. It's Tuesday night, 8 o'clock. So if you're watching live, thanks for being here. If you're not, pick us up later. Sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt and johnnytshirt.com. On the Beat Live comes Greg Barnes, as always, Gregory Hall, as always, and Brian Ives. Man, I feel like it's the IC intern takeover. What's going on, my man? Much. Always happy to follow Tate from the other night. So that's kind of the pecking order of former IC interns anyways. I'm I'm somewhere after Tate. So We tried to have y'all both. I I know. I was not in shape. I, I had a little family time. (laughs) <laughs> well it was probably best i don't know if the room would have held all of you guys i'd have just gotten out of the way uh greg let's get into it first jason staples may join us a little later um but greg carolina basketball plays a big game tomorrow night against michigan i thought hubert was a little less positive in his press conferences today and in this week than he has been do you think uh what do you think given your history covering Carolina basketball and knowing a little bit about um, Hubert, how has this week gone after that UNC Asheville game and the heat Carolina got and the heat his team got? How do you think it's gone inside the program? Well, I think it's probably been a a good break just because you had the first two games and we know how the team looked against Brown. And then you go to Charleston and, uh, you know, regardless of if you think, Charleston's a good team or not I mean, that place was hopping and that was a crowd that the players have not been uh, exposed to in, in a couple of years and so some of these guys have never seen that type of crowd and so you go directly from that back home uh, and I think they led this so that game was Tuesday night they left to go to Connecticut on Thursday night and then you have these two games up there you come back and then you are right back at it against Asheville so a very quick eight days there with a lot of travel and so I think getting through that and seeing the ups and downs and some of the struggles, it was very important for them to kind of take a, take a break, uh, get back onto the court for practice purposes. And, and Hubert dating back to the Asheville game, but, but especially today has really emphasized that he wanted to use that, that downtime uh, to really build chemistry, to get to know each other better uh, because, you know, a lot of people have talked about, you know, can you read people's emotions on the court? No, you can't. I mean, you can get a sense of it, but it's very easy to, to uh, read into things. And so I think a lot of it is just making sure these guys, because they haven't played in games, a lot of them haven't played in games together. After that first six-game stretch, get them together, see where everybody's at, have individual meetings with them, have, have team meetings with them. Uh, and I think that's where you have to start. And so by all accounts, that's what's taking place. Now we'll have to see exactly, you know, what kind of dividends that, that paid off. Brian, give us – I asked Tate last week 
um, sort of the 30,000 foot view of Carolina basketball at the time. Get, and when was that Asheville game? Yeah, we recorded Tuesday. that after. Yeah. yeah, so this is our second show since that game. So not much has changed on the court. What is the what is your 30,000 foot view of where this program is right now? The program as a whole, um, I, I've told people, I'm not sure, I've never seen a case where a program like a North Carolina gets a new head coach and there just seems to be, there's a lack of juice, I guess, around the program, lack of energy, not with necessarily with the players or the coaches, but just interest to me. Um, I was telling the story, I was down in Charlotte, for a Panthers game, and I was with a bunch of UNC alums, UNC had just beat – it was the day after the Wofford game, so the day after the Wofford, Wofford football game. And they're all asking about football, and they don't – like, no one even mentioned basketball. Like, basketball wasn't even on anybody's mind. Um, maybe it's because the season starts early. Maybe it – I don't know what it is. Um, but in terms of overall, there seems to be a lack of juice and energy excitement about Carolina basketball. Um, I think we saw that like 14, less than 15,000 people at the first game. I, mean, I guess COVID had something to do with that. Um, tomorrow is not even a sellout yet against Michigan. Um, so, I mean, there seems to be a little bit lack of juice around the program. Um, now, if you actually watch the team, it's a really like, if you like entertaining basketball, it's a fun team to watch. Um, they shoot, they get up and down the court. Um, they're going to make mistakes, but that leads to high back and forth games, um, high possession back and forth games shoot a lot of threes. They, they're, they're playing like people want. Obviously, they have extreme deficiencies on the defensive end at the moment. Um, I think on all levels, I think guarding the perimeter and then protecting the rim, I don't think it's a one thing or the other. Um, but they play an entertaining brand of basketball. They just need to fix some things. But as far as the whole program as a whole, I feel like it needs a little injection of energy. And I think that come tomorrow. If they can get a big win, I think that would really help sort of re-energize fans and people around the program. Yeah, that's where I was hoping you were going, Gregory, Carolina and Michigan tomorrow night. I mean, Michigan's not a top 10 team. Um, they started off that way. Uh, and I remember seeing them in the Bahamas two years ago, and I thought they were a national championship team. And they're still really good. And Jawan Howard brings a team. Is what Brian says accurate? I mean, Carolina gets a win against a team like Michigan, a name like Michigan. Um, does that really – sort of inject this team with some energy and and the fan base with some energy now that football's over yeah because i mean the talk since the tennessee weekend the connecticut weekend has been what does hubert what needs to happen and hubert talking about defense needs to change and we kind of saw that against Asheville, but then again it's Asheville. so i think if anything and i, I mean obviously a win tomorrow would be, would be great considering acc play they i mean they go to georgia tech on sunday um, so I think from that standpoint, it would get fans feeling good considering who, what's about to transpire with UCLA and then Virginia Tech. I mean, taking on Georgia Tech and Virginia Tech in your first two ACC games is not going to be easy. I mean, I know we talked at the beginning and when we did our um, – Greg, you did your prediction through January and you basically had, you had them losing one of those games. So I think from that standpoint, it helps. But then also if you just – if fans can see – some change tomorrow against Michigan, maybe whether that's more energy on the defensive end and no easy layups, maybe that's constant off the ball movement and actually getting good shots. And just that the last eight days and since Connecticut, seeing some of these changes transpire, I think will do more 
than just a simple win. Cause I mean, you can win ugly, right? Um, we, they can beat Michigan and because Dickinson got into foul trouble and Michigan missed all their shots and we could get on the show next week and be like, I mean, this team hasn't really changed much. Right. Um, so I think more than just a win, which they don't need to win for those changes to happen either. Right. I just, but seeing some movement in the direction that Hubert keeps talking about and these things need to change. I mean, he was asked what was the primary thing on defense that they worked on over the week. And he started by saying transition defense, which, okay, good, good primary thing to work on. But he's like, then we also worked on defense in the paint and we listed basically everything you can work on on defense. And so like, yes, defense as a whole needs to change. So those things you need to start seeing, I think will get fans feeling better than just a win. I think it's pretty easy, Tommy. Um, I, I think this is a situation where, where people looked at what happened in the Purdue game in the second half, and while North Carolina was able to score with Purdue, I mean, Purdue shot, what, 64% in that game in the second half? And then you look at what happened against Tennessee where the team was so lethargic. Uh, and then they didn't do a really good job, I didn't think, closing out a lot on Asheville and, and benefited from Asheville not being good shooters. Um, so we can talk scheme all you want, and that's important. But it's about the, the effort and the desire and the want to. And I, I think you know, I mentioned earlier about the idea of um, you know, people kind of trying to read emotion on the court. It's about the energy. And if, if these guys are, are busting their tail on the court on the defensive end and doing everything they can, I think the fan base will embrace them. What the fan base is not going to put up with is guys not giving it their all. Uh, and there have been, Hubert said, there have been times when the team has looked really good uh, defensively, and they have. But then they kind of let off the gas a little bit, and it's like they almost have a hard time reapplying the pressure. Uh, and so I, you know, regardless of win or loss, I think if North Carolina goes out there tomorrow night and that they, they play with their hair on fire, uh, I think the fan base will really be enthralled. I agree with that right there. Um, and, and if you're watching on YouTube, Jason Staples has joined us. We're still sort of continuing this crossover football basketball deal. Rail will not be with us tonight. I know that's going to disappoint plenty of fans, but find Rail on the Coast to Coast podcast that's out there now. Let me uh, let me expand on that, Greg, your point there, and I'll bring Jason in as well. Jason, we know in football how important it is to play with fire, to play with passion. And to show it, you know, it's pretty much the same in my mind for basketball. And to Greg's point, if Carolina came came out and played like a – what's Lawrence Taylor's line? Play like a bunch of crazed dogs and still lost is too old for you. That quote's too old for you, Gregory. Um, I think it was in like 85. But if Carolina did that against Michigan and still lost, I think people would feel a lot better – about what they're seeing as a product. Jason, your thoughts on that aspect of playing the game with fire and passion? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the thing about, first of all, as a fan, just someone watching, you want to see the passion and the evidence manifested in visible emotion. Uh, so just to, just to basically communicate that to the watcher. So I, I agree that it would that fans would feel pretty different about that had they seen that, um, and I do think that when you look at the the defensive, you know, basketball defense very similar to football defense is as much about buy in and uh, intensity 
as it is anything else. It's a mindset that you're going to play great defense and that you're just going to, that you're going to be physical, that you're going to refuse to let guys buy you all of these different things so much about, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, certain programs have such a strong defensive culture is because they, they build that, that intensity is built into the program. Uh, it's baked in and it's required every day in practice. And it's the same thing in football where, you know, the teams, I, I still go back to the quote that, uh, that I saw from another coach about Georgia this last year in football, comparing Georgia to Florida that, well, Florida, you know, they've got good talent, but they just don't, they don't play with great passion on defense. Georgia, on the other hand, Georgia, this coach said, Georgia plays like they're, like they're trying to claim your soul on defense. And that's what you have to have on top of really good talent. I mean, you can play with great intensity in, in basketball. And, you know, Tommy, you, you've had experience with, you know, legit, you know, N NBA type players. You guard those guys. And no matter how intense I'm going to be going out guarding that guy, I've had experience guarding guys who are in the NBA. And I'm not winning that matchup. No matter how intense I am, I'm still going to get my brains beat in because of talent. But once you have the requisite talent, the difference really is bringing that attitude to every play and doing what you're asked to do on top of that. And so, yeah, I think that that is a big part of this. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, I think it's on, it's incumbent on Hubert who's bringing kind of an, a more NBA kind of mentality to the program. It's going to be incumbent on him and the staff to bake that defensive DNA into a program that is taking kind of an NBA approach and has a bunch of transfers as well, who haven't been inculcated into that program. So that's a hard balance to, to, to have of this is the intensity to play with as a program in an NBA kind of environment with a bunch of guys that have not played in, in your program for a long time. So I think that's all a big part of this and they're going to have to find their feet and be and and bring that energy level especially to the defensive side of the floor every every night and so far that hasn't happened this Brian, is for everyone ahead, here Greg. speaking yeah. of the defense if it doesn't transpire tomorrow or sunday and it's still they're still getting blown by they're only taking one step left or right just the man isn't working some fans are already calling for a switch to de a defensive scheme to zone does it happen or should it happen? If the energy's not there on man, will zone cover that up? Just I wanted to I feel like we haven't really talked about that much. If this defense continues to be one of the worst in power five, especially in the ACC, I know Hubert said he, he's he's a man defense coach. He wants to play a man, but if it's not working, do you switch to zone? And does if the but if the energy's not there, will zone even cover it up? Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, you can't just play zone and be good. You got to be good at playing zone, you know? Like, <laughs> you can't just like, oh, we stink at man, we'll try zone. I and mean, you can try it, but you better be good at it um, or it doesn't matter. Um, you still got to move your feet in zone. You got to slide, move your feet, especially the big men down low. They got to go base uh, corner to corner. So, like, I mean, you can try it, but if you're not good at it, it doesn't really matter. Um, so, that's what I think. I mean, you can try it, but 
and the intensity well, level is still required in zone. I mean, yeah. why was Syracuse's zone? Why why has Syracuse mat? You can everybody can play the, this three two matchup zone that Syracuse has played for years, right? Everybody can play that same matchup zone. Why is it that playing Syracuse with that zone is a completely different experience from playing just about anybody else playing that zone? One is they recruit to it. So they have the bodies that have the length and, you know, the, the movement that is required in that, in that system. And number two, they bring an incredible amount of energy to that system culturally. They always have. So you, going to you, zone doesn't fix, doesn't fix the problem. If your problem is that guys aren't playing with the energy they need on the defensive side. And so you I, don't think it would help at all. Mm-mm. Not if they're not going to play it with with the passion that was required. Look at Syracuse. Jason brought up Syracuse, and I can, I can give you a Carolina reference too. Who was the kid that blocked the shot against Kansas in the national championship game for Syracuse? Hassan. Hakeem Warwick. Hakeem Warwick. Yeah, Warwick. He ran baseline to baseline on that one play, uh, or side to side on the baseline on that one play, blocked it, and was basically the game winner. That doesn't happen if you're not playing hard and playing – with passion, that helps to be six nine with, you know, seven two wingspan. But still, you're not going to get there. And then the few times Carolina played zone when Julius Peppers was on the team, Peppers was the bottom of the zone, the one back there. He could run it and he played it. Greg, that's the that's the issue with this team, right? And it's kind of the same issue. It's it's across the board with Carolina athletics, at least football and basketball is is playing like that, playing wide open every game for 40 minutes, for 60 minutes, whatever it takes. How difficult is that going to be for Hubert to get these guys to do it, given the fact that they haven't played together? They don't know each other um, uh, like normal teams would. You've got three guys that weren't here last year. I mean, it's not as simple as just saying, go play hard, or is it? Well, last couple of years, and last year is a good example. Uh, North Carolina was really good in terms of uh, defensive efficiency because they were dominant on the defensive glass primarily, but also because they had four legitimate bigs that could play. And while that causes a lot of problems for a lot of different things, particularly when it comes to outside shooting, very few people were successful against North Carolina in the paint. And so what happened is Roy Williams needed somebody on the perimeter Leaky Black got a lot of playing time, but because he wasn't an offensive threat, people kind of wondered his value. They're not wondering about his value now because North Carolina's playing a, a four-out, one-in, and he is the best defender on the court. Now, Baycott's come along, and he's got the length, and he's, he's showing that he can be a little bit of a shot blocker. Um, but you got to have Leaky on the floor with this team. There's, there's no question about it for some of the reasons that we've talked about. Um, and when Leakey decides to get after it because of his height and his length and his experience, he can be really good. And I think Leakey's playing as much as he is really to kind of set the, set the tone defensively. What we've seen, and granted, against Asheville, we saw a little bit different in terms of how they were set up in the post. But if you're going to do the four out one in and Baycott's going to be your primary big in the paint, you've got to do a really good job of taking away either shots at the rim or the three-point shot. Roy was adamant he was taking away shots at the rim. And what happened was sometimes teams got hot from three. You couldn't do anything about it. But, hey, North Carolina always had a good – always did a good job against shots in the paint. What we saw the first really six games is that teams were not only getting layups. I mean, what was it? Was it Tennessee that had 21 layups? 
they're also shooting like 35% from three. That's not going to do it. I mean, that, that can't happen. Like, if you're going to give up so many layups, at least lock them down on the perimeter. At least run them off the line. Uh, and so that's – I think that's really what Hubert's got to figure out. And I asked him about it today, and he said, you know, our guys have to do two things. They have to do two courses of action. They have to be able to stop dribble penetration, but they also have to be able to recover and close out on the perimeter. Roy Williams said the same thing, which kind of speaks to the difficulty in getting guys to do that. And that's where you get into the intensity and the effort, all those kind of things. And so it's really just kind of driving that point home. And I know people want to see multiple defenses because Hubert hinted at it. That's what uh, Dean Smith used to do. A lot of coaches do that. If you can't play your base, you're not going to add in a bunch of different looks. This is not going to happen. You have to be good at what you do most of the time. And once that happens, then you can branch out. 100% agree with what you were just saying, Greg. And that's one of the reasons why I actually think the fact that Hubert's saying, no, we're going to stick with man right now. We've got to be a good man team is actually encouraging about his approach as a coach. Knowing that these guys have not played together before, knowing that they're trying to, to build forward as a team, knowing that they've got to get good at something and they've got to be able to hang their hat on something before they can actually do other stuff. Those are marks of, of an experienced coach. That's stuff that an experienced coach is going to, is going to say is no, look, this is who we've got to be. And yeah, maybe in March we can play, we can play a zone, but we're not going to go to zone thinking that it's going to save us if we can't do our base stuff. Well, right. And again, going, Tommy, you were talking about parallels to football, like, well, you know, we can't run the ball and we're not throwing our base pass concepts well. So let's, uh, why don't we, why don't we add up a, a few new formations and include a few, a few new, a few new wrinkles this week? Well, it's not going to do much for you. It might help you on a couple possessions, but after that, you're going to get locked down because you have to have a, a, you have to be strong in a base and in your identity enough to actually let those other things build on or to build on, on those, those strengths with other things. And, you know, I think, I think he has a, a, an understanding of what he's got on his team and is going to, going to require that they live to the standard. Now, again, the first part of that is, can he get them to practice with the intensity that's needed for that to manifest in the game? I mean, he's trying to use motivational stuff like, you know, the, the defensive ratings and, you know, who, uh, who's going who's gonna to start and all that. And that's great. But the real task, the real hard thing is getting guys to practice. And yeah, we're talking about practice, man. Um, getting guys to practice with the intensity level that is necessary for that to come out in a game and for it to work with different personnel who are, who are starting to learn to play with that intensity together. So yeah, I, I, I agree with, with all of that, uh, Greg. Uh, is, is is the chemistry issue and all with transfers is that a is that across the board nationally or it seems like Gonzaga has one and dones they have chemistry I mean excuse me they have transfers um, and they don't skip a beat now they're they're the standard at the moment one of the standards but what's going on across the board nationally with teams um, are they dealing with some of the same issues Carolina has in the early season um. I don't. I mean, I don't think there's a, a straight up trend across all 
teams for chemistry. I mean, Baylor last year was full of transfers and were flagrantly the best team in the country. Now they were old transfers, big like season transfers, and only one of North Carolina's transfers is really a season played a lot veteran. I mean, Dawson Garcia's played, but he's a sophomore and McCoy has not played a lot. And then Manic is your more traditional seasoned transfer. Um, but I don't think I don't think that's an excuse. It might be true, but plenty of teams have transfers all across the country and have no issues. Um, so I, I don't I don't really see that. Um, I I mean I I'm never one to like to speak on chemistry issues because I'm not in the locker room. You know, it's just hard. Um, but uh, to me, it's just a matter of you know you see it sometimes with body language. I know that there was a clip that went around when a player took the ball off the dribble instead of keeping it around the offense. And you could see two other players kind of get frustrated with them um, physically. So you can kind of see stuff like that. Um, but I mean, it, I, I guess there is a point uh, to your point, Tommy, that also Hubert's a new coach. So when you try to work in these new transfers with a new coach, you might not be a hundred percent sure with this system. Maybe there could be a little chemistry issue. You know, if Roy brings in transfers, he knows what he's going to do with those players. He knows their role. They probably know their role. And is this, it's much more, it's everyone's kind of figuring out coach and player. So there might be something there, but um, nationally, no, I don't think transfers are really, you know, oh, they're struggling to fit in. That's just, I mean, there, there's 1500 transfers, you know, <laughs> they're going to fit in. Ives, what's your view of the, I was going to move on, Jason, unless you have something on that. I was just going to say, doesn't doesn't the percentage of transfers on your roster and what year they are in your program also matter? So, I mean, you oh. can have a transfer, like you said, you know, if, if the transfer is in his second year, he's hardly a transfer at that point. Or, you know, if you've got two transfers in your starting lineup, but three of those guys have been there for two years, the other three, that also changes the dynamics. When you've got a, a large percentage of your roster that's first year or you know, first year transfers, I think that makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, and, and North Carolina only has what one senior that's been in North Carolina on their team. Um, right. And leaky and, uh, and, and, and Baycott's a seasoned junior, but like, you know, everyone's kind of new, you know, even Caleb has played a lot, RJ's a lot, they're just still just sophomores. So I guess when you throw in that, um, they're still figuring out their roles as a new coach too. So, you know, I, I guess there's something to it, but I don't think it's something that, hey, they have all transfers. That's why they have chemistry issues. I don't, I don't buy that. Let me jump in. I, I got one more to stay here, and I'll ask you, Greg. Does, does Mannix do do Mannix comments after UNC Asheville serve a purpose um, internally, Greg? Because uh, it certainly served a purpose externally, because uh, it got the fan base, especially inside Carolina message boards, boards on fire. Do they serve a purpose internally? I think so. And I think there's two ways to really look at it. You know, I think on one hand, you hear him talk like that. And it's, it's almost like, you know, I came to North Carolina to have a chance to win a national championship. And you know, we're playing like this. It's almost <laughs> like that level of frustration, right? Like this is supposed to be like the, the pinnacle of the sport. And yet we're playing not even like a top 25 team. Uh, but the other component is he's played more basketball than, than anybody on this team. Um, and he's played for some teams that have struggled. He's also played on some pretty good teams. Uh, and maybe he just felt that, hey, I, I need to be honest and, and express that 
this isn't acceptable and we need to do better as a team. And if you notice, he didn't call it anybody specifically. He talked about the team as a whole, which I think is an important part of this. So I, you know, Huber said he was okay with it. And I agree with him. Um, you know, if he'd have come out and pointed fingers at somebody, that would have been a problem. But I thought Brady was very diplomatic in how he handled it. And I, I thought it was encouraging. I, I thought he was sending a message not only to his team, but also to the fan base. And, and I, I think that's a good thing. And he's played in more like – I know he played at Oklahoma. People don't think Oklahoma great. He's probably played in more big games than anybody on this North Carolina roster. Yeah. Like as sad okay. as that is to say as a North Carolina fan. He's played more – he's played with more talent than Trey Young than anybody on this North Carolina basketball roster. Um, Leaky Black was on a really good team. Um, a one seed team, but he's he knows great talent. He's played in huge games in the Big 12. He's played at Kansas, so he's played in more big games than anybody on this team. So I think he's a voice that that team should listen to. Maybe he combined, also, right? Maybe yeah. more big games combined. Than yeah. Anybody. I mean, he also was asked about his own performance in that um, in that press conference. He was just like, "I played okay," and okay, he had a decent right, game. Yeah. He was just like, "I mean." it's fine it's like whatever like obviously he doesn't care about his own performance right which goes on not pointing fingers Ives I wanted to ask you about the new Hubert Davis offense what you've seen out of it and what you like about it um it's still taking some getting used to I I I cannot I do not like when a North Carolina team does not crash the offensive boards it just like makes my mind go like because that is so I mean that is that's 60 years old um that philosophy so it is weird when you see guys that are six six running back on defense rather than crashing the boards. Um, but to be honest with you, like it's 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 working. The offense is working. Um, I think it's going to be. It's not. I mean, it's not going to be as. Cons- I don't think it's. I don't know if it's ever going to be as consistent as it was under Roy, simply because of the volatility of three pointers. Um, in college, this isn't the NBA. Like. People see, oh, play like the NBA. Well, the NBA is a completely different level of basketball. It is insane that everyone can shoot. Like every center go out there and practice and make 80% of their threes. That's not going to happen in, 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 in college. So you're going to have games where you shoot five of 29 from three. You're going to have games when you shoot 15 of 29. Um, I think Syracuse is pretty much showing that tonight in the first half and the second half. Sorry if that dates this. But it's just it's going to be more volatile. But when it works – I think it's really pretty. We saw it work against Purdue. Um, I think they made a lot of tough shots, tough shots that I don't think is sustainable. RJ Davis is making some silly shots in that game. Um, but, and then we saw it not work against Asheville, to be quite honest. So I think just the, the volatility is going to be frustrating, but when it's on, it's, it's, it's really fun to watch. They're shooting 43% on shots, five to 10 feet from the basket. And they're shooting is- 41% from three. Yeah, that, Adrian that, that Atkinson makes... did his whole numbers thing today, and that stood out to me. Of just like you can't be. Yeah. But the thing that would make fans happy is a bet. I mean, what percent of those two ranges are their shots? Like fifteen percent hope... and fourteen percent. So fifty and fourteen. Fifteen so six... and fourteen. So only thirty percent of shots are from three or inside the from five to ten feet. Yeah, because inside five feet is thirty-three percent of their shots. Okay, and so threes are probably high percent of shots too. That was my, my more my point is that oh my bad, thirty nine percent from three is of their and shots and thirty. So you're looking at what seventy percent of their shots or plus or whatever are from either right beside the basket or threes. 
See, that's what fans are going to see at. They hear analytics. That's what they're going to like. Um, now, if you're not making them, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so you better make those close-up shots. Um, but the fact that you're getting 70-plus percent of your shots either at the rim or from three, I think it's a positive. Um, you just got to start converting, especially down low um, at a greater rate. And I, I think that's, I don't think that's a Baycott problem either. Obviously he's shooting great outside of that um, uh, Purdue game, shooting like 80% or something, but uh, it seems to be an everybody else problem down low. Yeah. My, my thing is it, 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 this offense is turning into, it's either a layup or a dunk or a layup, a dunk or a three and or turnover. Or, yeah, or a turnover, and, and that's your 100%. And, Greg, let me bring you back in on this. That's what gets you – that's what gets really good teams upset in tournaments is relying on that. And that's why Carolina's always been able to survive a hard three-point shooting contest or three-point shooting night because they could pound it down, stay, uh, down low. And also, that's the rub for me for this offense – you know, we Gregory asked the question to, to Ives, do you like the offense? That's why it's kind of – it gives me a little bit of pause, Greg. Is that for a good reason, or is it just how it is these days? I think it's probably just how it is these days. Um, but if you look at what Roy Williams did, I don't, I don't think people kind of give him enough credit, even though his, his resume speaks for itself. And how – and Ives mentioned in this earlier, uh, kind of – brought this to mind but Roy Williams even more so than Dean Smith was adamant about rebounding uh, he played man-to-man for the sole well not sole purpose but one of the key purposes of when I've got when I know I'm defending this particular player I know I got to box him out and it makes it very easy that helps defensive rebounding uh, but also because if you're a very good defensive rounding, rebounding team that starts transition for you. And when you add in the 21 defense with the hands in the passing lane, you create some turnovers, that helps with transition. And so while you did have this offensive scheme that was very much freelance, I mean, he ran some box sets and all these things, but for the most part, they ran a freelance philosophy to utilize each of the players' uh, you know, individual actions and whatever they're good at. Um, but a lot of it was predicated based off of we're getting rebounds we're getting out running we're going to be aggressive in the passing lanes we'll get turnovers we're going to get out and run all those things help the, the offense whereas kind of what we're looking at now this is more of a, of a designed approach um, and, and wanting to be able to utilize the three-point shot more I've heard Hubert Davis say in the first couple of weeks of the season that he's going to get set plays for guys whether it be Corin Walton or Dawson Garcia I've heard him say that more than I think I heard Roy say in 10 years. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a different approach. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's going to take some getting used to. I really, th you know, and I'm biased. I've covered North Carolina with Roy Williams at the, at the helm for 15 years. I understand exactly what he wanted to do. I'm not there yet with, with Hubert. I don't think any of us are. And so we're kind of trying to piece this together. But I think there are some question marks about this new approach, even though the analytics clearly state that basketball, particularly at the NBA level, is three-pointers and, and layups and dunks. I think in late-game situations, if you if there's – because right, Roy always talks about in the players, it's like what happened at the end of the game. It's like ah, it's all that 
freelance, right? They're freelance offense. I think late game situations here, if you can call a play for Caleb, Kerwin, Brady, Mondo, I think, I mean, we haven't really seen tight late game situations yet, but um, we could tomorrow. Um, two pretty evenly matched teams, in my opinion. But I think that helps there um, if you're calling calling set plays because I don't. It's not like they're calling set plays every single time up and down the the court, right? So, well, the the one thing that gave me hope, and I mentioned this with Dewey on the Post Tennessee podcast, is that against Charleston, Carolina was able to get into a half court set and run their offense and get good shots. They hadn't done that since. It, they did some against Purdue, but they were playing well. And, they, and like I've said, they were hitting ridiculous shots. RJ was hitting ridiculous shots. I think it's just like short yardage in football. You got to be able to run your stuff when it bogs down. And I think Carolina more this year, given what you mentioned, Greg, the offense and the reliance on those is they're going to have to be able to run their stuff. And I'm not, I haven't seen through six games that Carolina's going to be able to do that with consistency. So let me ask you this, and I'll start with you, Gregory, and then we can go around the horn. Carolina versus Michigan on tomorrow night. I mean, this is a live podcast, so we're not dating ourselves too bad by talking about Michigan. I mean, this is a team that, that's got a stud inside, um, not much different than Purdue, even though Purdue had a couple of them. How does Carolina get off the – there's not juice in the tank against Michigan – um, from the national standpoint, is does it require a win? Does it require um, some sort of fantastic play, win or not? I mean, what do you how do you see it going, Gregory? Michigan is not a very good three point shooting team, and that's exactly how Arizona won um, and won big. Shout out Steve Robinson there, right? Michigan shot one of fourteen in that game from three, um, and on the season they shoot twenty nine percent. Now, I know all Carolina fans are going to be like, well, they're going to shoot 60% from three against the Tar Heels. Um, so when we're talking defense, and yes, you can't let Dickinson pick you apart. Um, you can't easy layups, but that's just basketball. You can't let that anyways. But what you can't do, Michigan's already not confident shooting the three ball. You can't let them get confident early. Um, and then you also have to force someone else to defend you outside of Dickinson. And I think that's where the connection between Armando and either Brady and Dawson gets going with some high, low, um, maybe some kickouts and things like that. Um, that's kind of how I see it going for UNC to win the game tomorrow night. Greg, there's some discussion in YouTube chat that Carolina's best game was when offensive. It was, was when Baycott only scored two points. Baycott's got to be on the floor, at least on the defensive end, right? Yeah, that, I mean, I think Baycott is the team's best player, and it's really not even close. So um, he's got to be on the floor. And you've got to have – you kind of, to your point, Tommy, a second ago, uh, when North Carolina has needed points in some of these games where they were behind, whether it be Brown or, or Charleston or even Purdue, and granted, Purdue, you had – two bigs that he was going against that kind of shut him down. Uh, but you have to be able to pound the ball inside. And when you have that option, uh, you that's, that's key. I mean, Charleston had no answer for him and that's why North Carolina won that game. And so, yes, you know, Dickinson is, is a good player and he's bigger than Baycott and all those things. Uh, but if he's able to take Baycott out of the game, uh, 
I mean, that's really cutting out a big part of what you're wanting to do. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think for sure he's got to he's got to be there. Um, and I, I really think you know, when you look at Michigan, two things stand out. As Gregory said, they've not shot the ball very well from from deep. That's been a problem for them. John Howard talked about that uh, earlier today about how they've got to start making some shots. I think Eli Brooks is really the only guy making threes for them. And then in terms of turnovers, they're not forcing turnovers like North Carolina is not forcing turnovers, but they're also committing a lot of turnovers. Uh, you're not going to win a lot of games if you're not able to force turnovers and you're committing a lot of turnovers. So those are, those are the key things for North Carolina. If you can limit what Michigan can do in terms of getting good looks from deep and you can turn them over while not committing a lot of turnovers and giving them easy baskets, uh, that, that's a pretty simple formula for winning. They better guard Eli Brooks. Yeah, he is. He yeah, tore some in six from three two years ago against Carolina. Yeah, yeah, he scored 24 in the Bahamas and, and Carolina um, failed to Michigan. Uh, so let's look ahead a little bit at Georgia Tech game. What, what's the ACC look like? We asked Tate this question, same question, and his answer was interesting. I was, I'm curious <laughs> as to your answer about overall in the ACC. Um, I think there's a narrative that it's not great. Um, I don't know if that's right. Um, I don't think, like last year, they have a lot of national title contenders. Um, I think Duke is a national title contender. Sorry. Um, I think uh, I think Florida State's young and new. They're at Purdue this evening. I don't think it's going well, but you know, they're at Purdue. Um, I think they will get better and better and better. They have three guys over like 7-3. Um, they're just Florida State. They are what they are. They're going to be really good. Um the one difference between the ACC the past decade and this year is maybe this is a hot take. I'm worried about Virginia in terms of are they going to have a season like we saw from Duke last year, Carolina two years ago. Um, just one of those seasons that don't go don't go right for whatever reason. Um, and if you lose a team like that, um, like the ACC has each of the past few years, you had one of their blue bloods last year, Duke was down the other two years ago. Carolina's down. People would said the ACC was down both years. So if you're losing a consistently top team like Virginia, I think the perception of the league is going to be that it is down. Um, but I do think there's some teams that can really be good. Um, I think Syracuse and Virginia Tech are insanely scary if you're playing them. I think Virginia Tech's one of the 20 best teams in the country, even though they're not ranked. I think they're incredibly well coached. Um, I think they can shoot the lights out. I think they have the best big man in the ACC. Um, I, I like Virginia Tech. And Syracuse is just bombs away. Um, so Syracuse is a type of team that could <clears throat> score 50 points. They're a type of team that score 110 points. They gave up a hundred the other day to Colgate, you know, so like Syracuse is a weird team, but they can be really good. Um, North Carolina's first ACC game is against Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech has maybe the best scorer in the ACC and Michael DeVoe, the best guard scorer in the ACC. So you want to get good at defense, you better get good at defense real quick. Or Michael DeVoe dropped 40, I think on Georgia the other night. Um, he could do that. So um, I, I think it's unknown. I think you have a lot of teams that have the parts. You just haven't seen it yet. Um, the problem is they're running out of time to get wins at conferences. Um, this is a big event that's going on right now, the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Um, not for like – like whoever wins a challenge is sit like – that doesn't mean anything. But just sort of like to get wins. Like if you're Louisville last year, you're the first team left out of the tournament, I think. Like – if maybe one other ACC team had won their Big Ten game or if you had won your Big Ten game, I don't know what that they played, that gets you in the bubble. It's things like that that I think can help the ACC maybe get 
an extra team or two in. Um, but I think ACC is fine. I don't think it's the best league. I don't think it's like the sixth or seventh best league. I'd say third or fourth. Um, so I don't think it's like terrible. But when you, one of your blue bloods is down in Virginia, I think you have a perception that it isn't, you know, great. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of gets to the, the, the point where North Carolina needs some of these wins. I, I think Michigan is going to be their best opportunity to get a good win. I think Michigan will, will like Carolina, will get better as the season goes along, and that, that could be a good win for them. I don't see things going well for them against UCLA and Vegas. Um, but with, like, the ACC, uh, I think Brian's exactly right that they need to get some wins because, you know, when you start looking at the net, for it to really matter – uh, at the end of the year, you know, a home win's got to be against a team ranked in the top 30 of the net for that to be a Q1 win. And right now, there's, I mean, it's Duke and I think Louisville's, you know, top 30, Ken Palm and Virginia Tech. And that's about it. So, you know, not saying that's going to translate to how the, the net actually plays out. But if you only have a handful of options to get Q1 wins at home, that means you're going to have to win some big games on the road. Uh, and that, that can be a challenge. You know, I mean, North Carolina could go 13 and seven and maybe not have any legitimate big Q1 wins. Yep. And so tomorrow night, I, I think, is a very key game. For this not to be an alarmist, but you're not in the NCAA tournament because you're North Carolina. You need to get some wins. Like, they're, like your best non-conference win cannot be at College Charleston. It can't. Um, because the ACC, while fine, does not provide – Oh, you beat a middle-range ACC team. That's a good win. It, you, you're going to have to beat some good teams. Plus, there are some huge landmines in the ACC this year that you can't lose. Pittsburgh is dreadful. You cannot lose to Pittsburgh. Most likely, you cannot lose to Boston College. So there are some teams that you just can't lose to in the ACC this year. That would be devastating for you. Whereas in the past, like, oh, we lost to a not-great ACC team. That's okay. They're still a top-100 team or something. Um, so – I, Carolina, this game is very important for them tomorrow. Um, UCLA obviously would be great, um, but that's, you know, we know that. But um, I do think tomorrow is a, a pretty important game for the, I mean, when you look back in March of this season. Is Georgia Tech one of those landmines? I don't think Georgia Tech's a bad, when it, at Georgia Tech, losing at Georgia Tech's a bad loss. Um, um, I, I mean, I don't know. They could, you never know with Georgia Tech. I mean, they lost the first two games to like, Weber State and someone else last year forget and they went on one ACC so you know lost to Miami of Ohio this year and lost Miami high first game this year and they haven't lost since or something I don't know but he um, is not favored against Georgia Tech on yeah Ken, Ken Palm. Palm yeah yeah so yeah, so um, uh things always go great for North Carolina sports in Atlanta though so we got that to hang out that's right that's <laughs> yeah, too soon man totally too soon it, it is um I think a key point that you just made there, uh, as you said, Carolina doesn't get in the tournament just because they're Carolina. Doesn't work that way anymore. There's so many good to decent teams that will have better resumes, and so Carolina's got to start build, building theirs against Michigan uh, tomorrow night in the Smith Center. I'll be there. Not a fan of a 9:15 tip, Greg. I know you'll probably be in the Dino at like two in the morning, Gregory. If you're covering, same thing with you. Um, just uh, yeah ridiculous times to start but i guess it's because folks need to get off the lawn let me talk about johnny t-shirt and johnny t-shirt.com sponsors of the podcast great friends of inside carolina and great friends of you the inside carolina premium subscriber get 10 percent off your order 
get some swag for Christmas. They've got everything you need, uh, basketball gear, football, soccer, any journalism school shirts. They even got that kind of stuff. And they've got all the trinkets and everything. I, I went, and if my secret Santa uh, person's not listening, I got a beer glass, a wine glass, and a coffee mug. Covered all three drinking problems, 25 bucks after their sale and Inside Carolina premium subscription discount. Sponsor from Let the National Guys Pay the Bills. We'll come back on the beat live. We'll hit some little bit of football information and discussion here after the break. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, this is Ross Martin from Inside Carolina. I want to talk to you about Inside Carolina's new podcast sponsor. It's Blue Shark Vodka. Blue Shark Vodka is a family-owned vodka company based out of Wilmington and Wrightsville, North Carolina. It's available in all 100 counties. And the thing about Blue Shark Vodka is it's the smoothest vodka in the world. It's made with sweet North Carolina corn to create the world's smoothest vodka. It's been distilled four times and then mellowed for 28 days to create that full blooming and awaking flavor. Each batch is in triple filtered, giving it a smooth, clean finish and eliminates any of the alcohol bite. Guys, I've been using it recently with some soda water, fruit juice, little lime juice. It's great for tailgates. It's light, it's smooth, and it's an award-winning premium vodka from North Carolina, local and family-owned. And it's available, once again, in all 100 counties. So head to your local ABC store to check out Blue Shark Vodka. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, boys, on the beat live. Got Ives, got Hall, got Barnes, got Staples. Let's talk football just a minute, Greg. Um, The question that everybody's asking, and this is always funny to me, it usually happens after – like an all-star game of some sort where somebody just goes nuts is why didn't British Brooks play more? What is the problem with Mac Brown and Phil Longo that British Brooks didn't have so much run during the regular season or during the season, given what he did um, in the last two games of the season against Wofford and NC state. Now I will say this, he was straight beast mode against NC state. Give the guy credit. Um, And I've always liked him as a player on special teams. But there was a game that he played last season to end the year that had an opportunity to break out and didn't quite do it. Did that have the biggest effect on his playing time this year, you think? Well, let me just say that that Gastonia, North Carolina natives, tend to bring it when when everything's on the line. And uh, that's what happened on Friday night. Regardless of what else has happened in that young man's career, he looked dynamite against the Wolfpack. So kudos to him for having just an incredible game to end his career on. And granted, I know he's got a bowl game left, but really impressive stuff. Um, but he's a, he's a special teams warrior and always has been. But yeah, as you mentioned, Tommy, he, he got run in the Orange Bowl. And the coaching staff really used the Orange Bowl as an opportunity to say, look, we got some new pieces coming in in the spring, most likely. Uh, let's see the guys we've got who's healthy because DJ Jones was not healthy. So you had Henderson and you had Brooks. 
Let's see how they look. This will be kind of their trial period. And neither of them really looked good. And Brooks got 15 carries in that Orange Bowl, which is what, exactly what he got against NC State the other night. Um, and so I think going into spring practice, the coaching staff had kind of seen what you know, Henderson and Brooks could do. And so that opened the door for some other guys to, to get some playing time. And Ty Chandler came in and kind of wowed them in spring. And that kind of set the, you know, set the depth chart. You know, and as we got into training camp, DJ Jones got healthy. And I think DJ's looked really good this year. And then Caleb Hood really popped. And granted, Caleb's been injured. You can only play so many guys. I mean, this is not like you know, we're talking about an old-school triple option where you got you know, three, three backs back there. And, and that's, that's it. It's not some conspiracy theory. It's not a matter of North Carolina's not utilizing guys the way they need to be used. Uh, it's just that, that Chandler and, and DJ Jones primarily showed out better in practice, and therefore they got the plan time. I got a question. Jason's probably better at answering this, so I'll, I'll ask a question. So he had had, he'd had, I think, 11 carries all year entering this season. If a coach had a choice, games 9, 10, 11, 12, to just have a fresh running back, just fresh and bring him in. He doesn't have 200 carries. Would they do that? Cause I mean, I think I'm, maybe I'm just naive. I think there's a lot to be said. It's got 11 carries. He's fresh. He's just going full out Or Ty Chandler, you know, he's banged up. Even Sam Howell, like they're just, their bodies are just worn out and you just have a fresh guy running out at, at an injured defense. That had to have been a reason why. No, I, I had a very similar thought when I watched him run the first couple carries, I was like, Whoa, fresh legs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the first thoughts I had when I, when I saw his first couple carries. Um, so there is some truth to that. Thing is, if the guy is going to be that good in games 10, 11, and 12, it, it's going to be really uh, difficult for a coaching staff if they know he's going to be that good in games 10, 11, and 12 to save him for games 10, and 11, 10, 11, and 12, because that means he's probably pretty good in the earlier games. But this is one of the big reasons why uh, coaches so frequently these days emphasize not having one true running back that's the bell cow, right? That, you know, when it, when in doubt, coaches prefer having one, you know, having three guys with, say, 150 carries rather than one guy with 400 and one guy with, you know, with, with 50. Because by the time you get to the end of the year, it's a, it, that, that wear really matters and you, you start getting guys hurt. And my old, actually the old, the old walk-on coordinator uh, that when I was playing was the running backs coach down there. And he actually told me a, a story that when he first got to Florida state, he had what he thought was the best running back he ever had. And he said, I ran the wheels off him. We, we, he, he, he ran so many, he had so many carries by the time he left here in four years I thought he's the best back I ever had. And he said, he only, he only lasted a couple of years in the league and was never the, never the player that I thought he would be in the league. And he said, I resolved then and there, I would never let that happen to one of my guys again. He's like, I was a young coach and, you know, it was helping our team to, to run him a bunch, but I would, I, I, I made a commitment to myself then and there, I would always rotate at least two backs because I would never let that happen to one of my guys again. And you know, that was back in the early 2000s that he was doing that. And they were and he was already making that rotation in the in the in the 90s. Everybody's trying to do that now for exactly that reason. So maybe you don't save a guy specifically for games 10, 11 and 12. But sometimes when you do get a guy that's really fresh and he is a good player, it works out that way. But uh, but you do try to rotate 
you know, two and three guys that can play all year so that you're getting the closest thing to that all year. And it really does make a difference late in games. I mean, look at what Javante Williams looked like in the fourth quarter of games in his career at Carolina, where he he served as the closer and, you know, all the, how fresh he would look all of a sudden, you know, late third quarter, you've got Carter's doing his thing. Carter's doing his thing. William, you know, Williams gets it, gets a series in there in the third quarter and then fourth quarter starts and a much fresher Javante Williams is suddenly just running wild. And I, I continue to think that Michael Carter and taking first three quarters, taking as many carries as he did is one of the big reasons that that was the case. Yep. So Javante only in had in games. Yep. Javante only had a handful of starts in his college career, but boy, did he finish games? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I wonder if you look at Carter and Williams's carries over their career compared to, uh, some of these guys that are like a Wisconsin running back. I mean, it's like Jonathan Taylor. Yeah, Wisconsin carries. Yeah, I mean, they had like more carries in a season than Carter and Javante had in their careers. And then you compare that to how it shakes out in the pros. But but back to Brooks, I thought Brooks was fantastic. There was there were several criminal acts um, that occurred Friday night in Raleigh. One is that Sam Howell didn't get to end his career at Carolina kneeling on Carter Finley Stadium in victory formation. Two, British Brooks didn't get um, to go out of there with a win, but the performance he had. And three, Grayson Atkins didn't go down as one of those kicks that uh, that we always look at um, when you talk about Carolina football. The Barth brothers both had them, you know. But Greg, looking ahead. I still can't believe they lost the game in Raleigh. <laughs> it, it is still like I we need to around. talk about this, Tommy. It's no, we don't. Uh, At least they is. didn't give up a 99-yard touchdown drive and then lose in the fourth overtime. Well, I, you know that that might have been a little bit easier to stomach than losing in 26 seconds. Wasn't um, it a great rivalry weekend though? It was crazy. I mean, it, really was. it was absolutely crazy. Um, crazy, and, but all the wrong teams, all the wrong teams won except for Michigan. Yeah, and and I've watched that one too. And wow, Michigan looked good. But State had their Geo game. They had their TA McClendon game. So it all evens out in the end. But Greg, looking ahead, where's Carolina going to wind up? Um, people said the pinstripe. I prefer Charlotte um, simply because that's an SEC opponent and it's close. And it's probably not as cold as the pinstripe, even though I was labeled soft for saying I didn't want to go to New York in December. Um, but Greg, Where's all this shake out? And does the ACC championship game winner and loser matter to Carolina at this point? No, just because of how the ACC bowl setup is. is. And uh, I really think it's, it's got to be Charlotte or the pinstripe. And what it's going to come down to is probably North Carolina and Virginia are, are your two options there. Um, I guess Virginia Tech's kind of in the, in the mix as well. Uh, initially, it was pinstripe because North Carolina has never been up there for that game. Uh, it's something different for the, the team. They haven't been in yeah, – they've been to Charlotte, I guess, three times in, what, 15 years? But they really haven't been recently. But then you have the – as of late, I've heard more Charlotte just because the pull of North Carolina and the fact that they haven't had the Char Hills in town since Mike Brown has been back, the fact that Sam Howes from right outside of Charlotte, all those things. Uh, I think those are your two primary options. And uh, I don't know that I have a preference, to be honest with you, but I think 1130 kick in Charlotte uh, is a little bit early. So it's 
we complain about noon kicks. That, that would be an early morning. I have a UNC uh, versus Auburn preference. If anyone, Greg, cares. would 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 playing in Charlotte have any impact on Sam's decision to play? That's, I don't think it would, um, but that wouldn't hurt if he could play. Begin your career in that stadium against South Carolina. End your career in that stadium against South Carolina. What a journey! Right, it would be right. <laughs> Or Auburn. I'd prefer them to see that they play Auburn just to get this dude in the Hornets Correct. jersey. Uh, we, we'd have a uh, winner stays uh, matchup, Gregory. So if Carolina, if Auburn lost, you'd have to beat it. Jason. Folks don't look, realize, by the way, at the Pinstripe Bowl, that's an open press box. So it's not just cold. You got to dress warm. Oh, Greg just changed his preference. <laughs> Hey, we play we play in the coastal division, right? Where you've got open press boxes in Virginia. So I've covered many a game in Virginia with gloves on my hands trying to type. So it is so yeah, hard. But, it's but claws. It's, it's terrible, but but New York, oh yeah, in December with an open press box is a whole different thing. Right. Christmas time in New York. Would that be a fun trip? It's a fun a trip, but but make sure you got good gloves you can type in. I don't do cold weather, so I'd prefer to see Carolina go to the Bahamas Bowl one time. I don't I'd believe it should be below push. 85. Yeah, I'd have to put in my credit. Is a, it's a good bottom threshold temperature. That That is a – the discussion about Sam Howell, that'll be interesting to see if they do play in Charlotte. Um, I know what I'd do if I were in his shoes, um, but I'm 50-year-old old man that needs the money. So uh, let me I'd ask one out. question. I, I, oh, 100%. But I, I would sit out if I'm if I'm going pro, I'm sitting out for one other reason. It gives your it helps your it helps the team next year. Nice. It this won't game, be viewed as that though. I know it won't be viewed as that, but I mean, and folks are going to kill me for saying this. <laughs> I'm going to get creamed for this. But honestly, in this case, sitting out is is actually a team decision for him to give the, the younger quarterbacks opportunities to play. And if he chooses not to sit out, you know, there can be discussions of, look, uh, you know, I'll play first quarter or whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll be there, but, you know, we need to play the, the young guys or whatever. That just gets awkward. But, I mean, they need to take a step forward for next year, and it doesn't hurt to get the young guys some, some opportunities. So let me ask this question of the group, and I don't believe you come in and play a quarter because somebody did that. I forget who that was last year. They played like one quarter and then they took themselves out of the game. That's kind of silly. Uh, how would it be viewed, Greg? We know how uh, the opt-outs of the Orange Bowl were viewed. How would it be viewed if guys opted out this year versus how it was last year? Because I think a lot of people, um, a lot of the fan base, quite frankly, were angry that – people opted out and somebody on the message board or excuse me in the chat just said those guys sitting out last year didn't help this year that's a valid point it is a valid point uh, i'm actually interested in I think, did, I think they did help this year it's just this year still didn't go very well yeah i'm interested yeah, the, in the, position that's, the position that sat out last year were fine this year like wide receiver was fine um there were some injuries and then uh running back obviously was fine like because they I mean, went and got Ty Chandler. Well, yeah. Like, 
they figured the, out they need to go get they figured out they need to go get Ty Chandler based on the orange yeah. ball. That right. game helps them know we <laughs> better true. go get Ty Chandler. That's the right. thing. Uh, that did help. Okay, him. we're not okay here at running back. We need Ty and Chandler. Josh Downs became the guy in the orange bowl and realized, hey, we have a guy wide receiver. So I mean that's interesting. It exposed or um enlightened people on Josh Downs. And it exposed that you better go get somebody out of the portal in a hurry on the running back room. That, I bet you that's a different take than you were thinking there, T. Schlegel, in the IC, uh, in the YouTube <laughs> chat. Go ahead, Gregory. Um, coaching carousel, right? I mean, Lincoln Riley out of nowhere, Brian Kelly out of nowhere, with, which honestly, for not enough money, in my opinion, to go coach at LSU. I mean – million to leave a team that literally next week could be in the college football playoff. I don't get it, but for UNC, just kind of everyone, I mean, we'll probably talk about this later, but I know like people are going to keep asking what needs to change off season for this team to, for year four to be the year with the talent that's coming in, what needs to, whether it's specific coaching changes, whether it's just across the board, just changes. What are we what are we thinking? To anybody? Ives, Staples, Greg. I mean, they need uh, to get like cricket. they just they need to get better at certain spots. I don't know if that's coaching players. I'm not one to say that. Um, offensive line has to be better. There are gonna be a lot of new faces on the offensive line. Um, defensive line, like a lot of talent there, man. But you gotta, you know, you gotta get to the passer and who who. Y'all's little bet preseason that wasn't very close. Um, like the only the only guy, <laughs> even the only the national guy that guys got to the quarterback listening. this year was Tamon Fox, and he's gone. He's like the only guy who consistently got the My quarterback. My guy. Um, so 12. I think you need to get the quarterback. I think you're gonna have some young talent linebacker be okay. I think I I I don't I don't study the film like Jason does. I feel like the secondary improved as the season went on. Um, because those once the, they got the, Storm Duck back, yes, and and because because the pass rush really wasn't getting to the quarterbacks quickly. There was a lot of coverage sacks. I felt like late in the season, um, so I feel like they improved. Um, but the offensive line, like you know, they, they just have to. Um, and because the next quarterback's not going to probably, I'm guessing, is not going to be able to take the hits or willing to take the hits um, that number seven did. So. Um, and I think safety might be an issue. We might have seen that on Friday. That might be an issue as well. But, um, but there's, I mean, I don't know if it's coaches or players. You know, I, I'm not one to say it's a chicken or egg for me because I don't know. So, um, but there are some positions that drastically need to improve either talent-wise or schematic-wise. I would think, Jason, I'll ask you this. I would think portal-wise, and, and, you know, everybody says scream for the portal. I would think if, if there's a portal 1A necessary, that's a center. But if Anderson and Curon Johnson both come back, is it still a center? And, Greg, I saw you shaking your head. But, Jason, you got to have a monster grown man come in on the offensive line to stabilize that unit, given the fact that you could have three, four leave this year, right? depends really on what they what they think of the young guys on that roster. And we haven't seen much of them, right? I mean, you feel pretty good about Barnes coming in with the, with the strides that he made this year. 
Uh, if you do have Anderson and Kieran Johnson come back next year, and if they're healthy, because I mean, they got pushed around this year partly because uh, those guys were banged up. And so, you know, them not being especially strong plus being banged up was a kind of a double whammy. Uh, if they're healthy, then you got two centers that are that, you know, that can play in the ACC. You, you can you can win with those guys. Then you've got three other spots that you basically have to figure out who your best guys are. And, you know, one of them, your left tackle is going to come back. Question is, is left tackle the right spot for him? You know, do you have another guy? You know, maybe a Caden Baker is a better guy at that at that left tackle spot next year. You know, let's see what the development is on some of these guys. It, and you have to evaluate that. And you have to evaluate the guys that are available in the portal. Because, I mean, the fact is, I mean, you got one five-star tackle coming out of high school who is a really interesting prospect. I'm, I tend to be firmly of the view that with very, very few exceptions, you don't want uh, linemen playing as freshmen, as true freshmen, partly because I've seen for years, and I'm actually, uh, I've reached out. I've got a, a friend of mine who's, uh, who does this kind of work. We're looking at doing a, a, a potentially an academic article, looking at some of this at injury rates on, Young on, on, on what happens when uh, freshmen play on the line of scrimmage. I mean, that you, you don't want those guys playing before they're ready physically and mentally, because that leads to some really bad results for their careers. That said, I mean, if he's ready to go plan tackle is a place that you can, you know, step in and you can slide in and play earlier than you can at guard or center generally. Cause there's just, you know, it's a little bit more athletic position. There's a little less to learn on some of those things. They're going to have some some good options, I think, with the roster that they have. But again, it a lot of it is going to depend on how good you feel about that, and you know whether there's there's anybody who's really worth it in the portal that you that you can actually attract that you can that you can land. Because not just that oh, there's this guy in the portal; they should have gone and gotten him. Well, what if that guy didn't want to go to North Carolina? <laughs> right? It's not so straightforward. So. Um, so I think that, I mean, I think there's a good, there's a good enough set of bodies that they should be okay on the offensive line. My concern has been that, that what I've seen technique wise from the offensive line has not been good the last three years and it hasn't gotten better with the group that they have. And that's, that's my concern on that side of the ball. Uh, defensively, I think as the young guys continue to get older, I think you're going to see significant growth from some of those guys on the defensive line. I mean, I'd like to see certain things uh, done just a little bit better. And we're going to, I'm going to do a, a, a technique video uh, here soon in the off season about some of that similar to what uh, uh, similar to what we did with the offensive line, but I think they're going to be okay there. I mean, they've got enough talent. It's going to be hard not to get better on the, on the defensive line. So, you know, I'm of the view that generally speaking, unless you're a blue blood that can kind of just pull whoever you want from the portal, uh, you know, your Alabama's Alabama kind of, you know, well, we want you kid wants to come and potentially win a national title. They have an easier time with that aside from those programs. And those programs only do it for, you know, a couple of guys a year. I think the portal is basically a, it's a stopgap where you can handle one problem, two problems, and you can fix those problems and do pretty well with it. But if you, if you start depending on it, then 
you're going to ultimately hurt yourself because you have to recruit your way into long-term talent. That's going to, that's going to turn the program around. And that's, that's what they've been doing. It's just a matter. It takes time. There's a lag between attracting the talent and then the talent actually being sufficiently collected to make a difference on campus. Yeah. I think there's a chance that North Carolina loses, you know, upwards of nine guys, starters, probably not that many, but that's a likelihood. Um, And then you lose Sam Howe. So hate to say it, but uh, realistic Tar Heel fans think 2023 because I think next year's going to be about the same as this year, maybe a, a tiny bit better. Uh, Brian, before we, we get yep. you out of here, all ACC teams were announced Tuesday morning. Just wanted to get your, your thoughts if anything jumped out to you. This is how's this for an answer? Literally nothing jumped out. Um, <laughs> like I thought it was fine. Um, Tyler Davis. First team yeah, all ACC. and Brzee was on third team and played four games. But, like, he's that good. Like, Brian Brzee's that good. Um, he's better in four games. His, his impact are four games, probably better than most defensive linemen over his 12, 12 games. Um, yeah, Davis. Um, I, I guess because they're quarterbacks, so much consternation over who's third team. Like, who, like, good grief. Like, they're, like, it could have been any of them. They're all good. Like, they're, Malik Cunningham is going to have 2,000 or 2,500 yards passing, 1,000 yards running, 20 passing touchdowns, 20 rushing touchdowns, and isn't even talked about. Like, 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 and we're arguing over Leary how, like, Tyler Van Dyke only played like eight games, but was sensational. Like, so I don't like that argument was silly. Like, you could have literally picked seven guys for a third team and no one would care, but apparently people do care. Um, but as far as in terms of like any snubs or anything, no. I think I I think Kenny Pickett should be in New York. Um, um yep. Like no, I don't think he should win it, but um just because that's now Tisha, I think he should definitely be there. Um, um so I think that's the right choice. I think the running backs are great. Mateo Durant ran behind us five and was incredible. Um, same with Sean Tucker, for Pete's sake. Right. You've seen that offensive line the past three or four years. Um, wider, one of the best wide receiver groups we've seen in a while in this league. Um, and they're all back, I think. Um, they're all back. Uh, so there's some good some – good, Jordan Addison's a true sophomore, just like Josh Downs. Um, so He's going to win the Blitnikoff. As he should be the third winner from Pitt. You know, they're – classic pass hat pass first program they're just racking up the blitnikoffs yeah. um so uh yeah i had no issues with it I, thought, I mean to be quite honest looking at it i'm like god there's a lot of talent in this league especially offensively um and it just like everyone was so okay this year 10 bowl teams you know like it just there's so much talent in this league offensively that you wish um there's a team that was maybe a little more competitive in the, in the upper echelon of the country well, Pittsburgh, if they beat oh, Western, Western Michigan, Michigan oh, they're God. in the college football playoff conversation. Yep. God. yep. Went at home a, against a, a bad Mac team. What and I think he loss. threw, I think Pickett mm-hmm. threw like five or six touchdown passes that game. It wasn't his fault. He got hurt mm-hmm. too. It came back. Like, ugh, God. Yeah, what, a, what a terrible loss. By the way, just to support your point about Brzee, Brian, uh, earlier in the year, I did a, I did a look. This was uh, before the Florida State game. I did a look at what Clemson had done defensively before. He got hurt against NC State, and then after, before he was hurt, they were allowing 4.05 yards per play. 
mm. which would have been fifth in the nation and just just outside of you know being second. I mean, it was right there. And after that, they were giving up five point two two eight yards per play, which would have been forty, which would have been forty first nationally if those if that stretch had been the only stretch. So you're looking at, I mean, what's the delta on that? Like thirty percent more yards per play when Brzee is once Brzee is lost for the year. He's one of those linemen you like to play as a true freshman. Oh my gosh. But he played as a true freshman. And I mean, I'm not, I I mean, we can't, it obviously causality is a different thing. I mean, we can't say, well, he played as a true freshman and that's why he got hurt. But again, I mean, yeah, he's a super talented guy and he does, he did get hurt. So, you know, I, I do think that, you know, if I had a, if I had a son who was, you know, an offensive line prospect and a really good one, I'd be trying to, I'd be trying to find places where, you know, where does, where do you not need him for the first year or two for that guy to be able to develop before he gets on the field? So Tommy, two quick things. One, uh, Brian's talking about how good the quarterbacks are in this league. I posted on the board today that uh, according to pro football focus, five of the top 12 quarterbacks in the power five reside in the ACC. And that does not include Sam Howell, um, which is insane. The other one, and Ross got flack from Marquise Williams uh, for referencing Georgia Tech, but I think this is interesting since Brian mentions bowl teams. Georgia Tech is one in nine against bowl teams, bowl eligible teams this year. Mm. Who's the one? (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't want to be a defensive coordinator in the ACC this year. That's that that that's given the quarterbacks and and some of the receivers in this league. Oof. They um, Georgia Tech. I was talking about they. They're like they're just set up to. It's tough if you're playing Georgia and Clemson every single year. Like, you're if you're perfect. If you are perfect, you are nine and three. Like that's that's the best you could probably go. Um, and next year they play Ole Miss. They play UCF. Like, uh, like just. Uh. <laughs> they're and then you and then you and then you stuff. Yeah, and then you throw in that you're probably going to get the hell – you're going to lose bad against Clemson and and Georgia, but you're also going to get everybody hurt when you play those guys. The Alabama effect, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah, totally Alabama unfair. broke Miami until eight. about November. Exactly, exactly what I was going to say. Until Van Dyke showed up. And, 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 you know, the other thing is that if you're Georgia Tech, you also basically have to recruit against Georgia, Clemson, in your like people people forget how close clemson is to atlanta to the atlanta metro and area yep. and then you, you know those those you're recruiting against those two teams that that are already ahead of you in that respect and you play them and that's not helping and then alabama's like right next door and yeah. then you just go you know <laughs> two hours west and you're in auburn auburn's about as close to atlanta as uh as anything i mean they're just across the state line and then you go another half an hour, 45 minutes, and you're, you know, right, in, right, in, right near Tuscaloosa. So you're and, – and then if you – oh, well, we're going to go to South Georgia and we're going we're gonna to try to get away from this. Welcome to Florida State country, right, where Florida State and Florida are, are, come, are, are imposing there. Georgia Tech is a tougher job than you'd think based on its location and everything else. I mean, like you said, it's given schedule, given who you have to recruit against in your own backyard – and the strength of those those brands against you, that's a really tough place to win. They got a varsity. 
where you can get cleaned oh, out. I love the varsity now. When you get cleaned out after going there, uh, but I digress. Let me let let's start angling towards getting out of here. We said we we're going to do an hour show. It's now nine twenty-two on the East Coast. Brian, if you need to dip, dip. We're good, my man. I appreciate you joining us, man. You're you're awesome. You got to come back and get with us later in the season. Yep. Y'all have a good night. Appreciate it, my man. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Brian. Greg, let me ask you a, a question about everybody wants coaching changes and all that. And Gregory talked about it earlier in the show. The coaching carousel is just freaking insane. I cannot believe Brian Kelly left Notre Dame. Um, you see Lincoln Riley. Riley's package? Uh, I, I can safely package. say I've never seen that. Yeah, $110 uh, million, brand new house, buying both his houses in Norman for $500,000 over asking, 24-7 private jet for his whole family. It's like – and he's already got all the Southern Cal kids that were committed to Oklahoma. They've already committed to USC. Yep. And it's the be- and it's arguably the best job in the country. Oh, I mean, Sorry, I didn't mean nowhere- to interrupt, but I just it's just the craziest thing I've ever seen. There's nowhere, there's nowhere else in the country aside from maybe Ohio State where you basically have the, a free path to the, to the playoff where you don't have anybody in your conference or on your regular schedule who can recruit close to the level that you can. If you're at USC, you don't have to drive more than an hour. And I'm talking about even including LA traffic to fill your class with 24 star guys. They're all right there. And every one of them grows up a Trojans fan. So why have they sucked since Pete Carroll? Well, partly because they've, they, well, one, one was sanctions, right? So sanctions gutted that program immediately after Pete Carroll. And then during the sanctions, they had Lane Kiffin there as their, as their head coach. And this was a guy, this was a Lane Kiffin who, you know, by the way, to tell you how good that job is, when they've wanted to, they were able to pull a, pull a, a sitting head coach from Tennessee who then said, look, this is the best job in the country. Sorry, I was only here a year, but like, look, you'd do it too. And he's right. Um, and from Oklahoma, that tells you how good that job is. But they went Lane Kiffin with, with sanctions and then fired him. Then they hired Sarkeesian. And I don't think very much of Sarkeesian as a, as a head coach, just for the record. And um, I think his record at, uh, at Texas this year as, a, as an indicator, which he took over a pretty good roster, is further evidence of, you know, that guy not really being a, a great option. And then when they fired him, who did they hire? Helton. His, off, his offensive line coach from inside, who I've been in the same room with Helton, and he's a great guy, but he's not a head coach. So they basically tinkered around and, and hired Lane Kiffin, who, you know, different things that you can say about him in terms of his, his ability to run a program, especially at that, of that kind of program. And then two duds of head coaches, they've just kind of stepped all over themselves. But when that program is fully weaponized and they have a competent head coach, there's nobody in the country who has easier access to talent than they do. Everybody on their schedule has to, has to basically come into their backyard to recruit guys that grew up watching USC and rooting for USC. And then they don't have to play anybody outside of that in order to make the playoff. So, I mean, Riley made the best decision of his life, leaving OU where that job is way less attractive now because it's about to be in the SEC. That job is way less attractive. I mean, they're in they're you know, they could very easily become Nebraska. 
in the SEC, right? I think Texas and Oklahoma tanked themselves going to the SEC. It's it's it, it's really not understanding what your what what your your advantages are relative to you know what your competitive advantages are. And I'd say the same thing about like Florida State and Clemson. Why would you want to go to the SEC? Your part of your advantage is that you play in the ACC. And you know, same thing with North Carolina in terms of football on that. Uh, Kentucky basketball has that advantage, you know, in, in reverse. So, you know, this is one of those things where that's a huge advantage. LSU is a better job than Notre Dame because they can get players. Notre Dame can't, can't recruit some of the players that LSU can, and LSU owns the state of, of, of Louisiana. It's probably the best job in the SEC West, and that includes Alabama. I, look, you put Nick Saban at LSU. If he never leaves LSU, LSU might have won nine national titles. Because the, the infrastructure there, recruiting wise and everything, is completely different. It is just Tommy, crazy the money. Go ahead, Greg. Lane Kiffin was 35 when he went to Southern Cal. So he was I, I would have flamed out too. I, I right. would have flamed out too. In in Southern, Southern Cal. <laughs> so at that job, know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's 46 now. He's a little bit older than I am. I can only imagine what I'd have done ten years ago. So uh, I'm gonna give him. And a look pass what he's that. look what he's doing on social media. You could be doing the same stuff, Greg, if you had a Twitter. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You that could be the no, king of Twitter. There would be no cameras allowed rule if I was that, in Southern Cal at 35 years old. Right. And, it, and in terms <laughs> of knowing knowing what's best for you in terms of these schools, this is another example. Lincoln Riley going to USC. Why the Pac-12, the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10 should vote against playoff expansion. The oh. best decision they can make is to, to keep it at four. That they're not going hamstrings to the SEC. They're not going to do it. They're not. Because, they, yeah. Um, I, I, think, I, I think they – anybody they, with any sense from those conferences, I mean, they did sort of put the brakes on it. So they, they, you know, some of those folks must realize that that needs to happen. Yeah. But I mean, you know, ex you can make the case to expand it to eight, guarantee all five of the power five get in the, the mm. group of five, top 10, top team that leaves two at large, but 12, uh, this is going to be half SEC teams. You do six. And you, you have the five and then five champions. And then you have the best group of five team. But if they're yeah. going to expand it, I'm all for six. Yeah, but they're going to go 12, and it's going to be, you know, just another SEC tournament. Uh, let, let me wrap this around to a Carolina-related question, and I'll start with Greg, and everybody can chime in. Greg, with the massive coaching changes that are going on across the country, I mean, I feel like Michigan State and Penn State knew um, not just about, you know, other stuff, but they knew about this coaching stuff that was coming. And they signed their guys to massive deals um, before it got started. That pun cracks me up. But, Greg, does that change maybe somebody like Matt Brown's thinking about changing the coaches, about um, making moves to um, coaching staff moves? Does it, does it affect what a coach like Matt Brown, not necessarily at Carolina, other coaches too that are in the same situations, does it change things? when so many different jobs are in flux, so many different jobs are flying around. Um, it, it makes it pretty hectic when you're trying to nail down um, upgrades 
for lack of a better term, right? Good yeah, luck I, getting upgrades. I don't yeah. think it changes Mac Brown's opinion. I think it confirms his opinion. Uh, one thing that Mac has really stressed last couple of years is, is the impact and value of consistency in your coaching staff. Um, and I really think that there's going to be so much change. I mean, even in the ACC with what's going on at Virginia Tech. Um, but there's going to be so much change across the country. There's like 18 openings already. And some of them, of course, have been filled. That's crazy. There's 130 FBS teams. We're talking about, what is that, 15%, close to 15% of openings? And most of those teams are like elite teams. And those yeah, are just got, head coaching jobs. That's correct. not including yeah. all the staffs. Correct. You, you've got arguably, what, four of the top eight or nine jobs in the country that have opened. I mean, certainly, yeah. what, five of the top 15. And right now there's actually discussion that Ryan Day may be talking with the NFL right now. Correct. So that could be another top three or four job. I mean, my well, and whoever Notre Dame gets, if they get a top coach from another program, that's going to – I mean, it's going to be snowball effect. So the point is, if, if Mac has no pressure on him whatsoever, and that's a benefit, he's going to coach in North Carolina however long he wants, he's going to have success. And knowing that, number one, he's got to make sure that the coaches he has are guys that he likes. He likes Jay Bateman. He likes Phil Longo. He likes in terms of what they do schematically. So given all this chaos – I know a lot of people are really hard on Jay Bateman. I've criticized the job of the, the defense this year. I don't think they've really made any strides. I mean, I look today, they're 100th nationally in points per possession allowed. It's not good. But when you look at what recruiting is taking place, they are a little bit young. They're only going to get better. They need to get drastically better, right? But if, if Mac believes that, that Jay is a guy that's a good recruiter, He's a good coach. Some things went wrong. Maybe he needs to improve. It's only his third year at the Power Five level. If Mike believes he's a guy he can get better and learn and he trusts him, there's no reason to make a change. Give him another year. And if it still is not working, then you can make a change. Uh, now, there's, you know, we can have a conversation about offensive line. Is that group played well enough to warrant keeping Stacey Searles? Uh, I think we could have a, a very healthy debate about that, healthy conversation about that at least. Um, and so that's what Mac has to do. There are some positions he may feel like, I have to make a move for this program to get better. There are other guys that can say, you know what, I think this is a good guy. He fits with me. He fits with what I want to do. Maybe he didn't perform as well as I would have hoped this year, but I see potential. I see reasons to stay with him. He has that luxury, and I think everything going haywire nationwide is only going to reinforce this concept of, look, if we just stay consistent and we have the same guys on staff, that's better for the progression of this program than just firing people willy-nilly. And he's Auburn, right about that. I know I know. Auburn talk, blah, 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 blah. Six different offensive coordinators since 2016. How has that affected the offense, Gregory? Not, not in a good way. Okay. Yeah, Regardless of what Bo Nix is capable of. Bo well, nobody knows what he's capable of, right? Six different offensive coordinators in six years. So, yeah, consistency yes. matters. Who knows how? Who knows what Bo Nix is capable of? Because when you have a different offensive coordinator every year, you don't actually get to grow into a system. The best example of this to me is Karsten Palmer. So before, uh, before you got before uh, uh, 
Pete Carroll got to USC, Carson Palmer had four coordinators, right? So he, oh. he, he was at, he was at, uh, at USC and in his four years as a starter, he had four different coordinators and never looked like that dude. Then he gets drafted and goes to the NFL and shows exactly what everybody thought he would be when he went to USC. And it's like, well, what happened? Well, he started doing stuff when he was in his you know, second or third year with the same coordinator in the NFL, which was the first time since high school that it happened. And all of a sudden his talent was able to come out because he was able to play without thinking, but he never got to that in college. And you could only really see it in the, in like the last couple games of his senior year in the bowl game where he suddenly flashed everything and, you know, teams, NFL teams kind of looked at him, but I remember watching Palmer and going, I think that guy's got legit talent, but man, you know, and I looked it up and sure enough, four offensive coordinators was like, I bet you. And that's the thing. And, you know, Auburn six coordinators since 2016, look at the mess in Tallahassee with the coaching changes down there. Right. No. You've had, what four offensive coordinators and four defensive coordinators in the last five years. You, you can't win that way. And when you change, whenever you change, there's always going to be a step back before there's ever a step forward. And that's presuming that there's a step forward. And if you've already got good guys as your coordinators, there might not be a step forward because you're not guaranteed that the next guy is going to actually be better. What I would do on the coordinator side, if I were Mac is I would require that Phil Longo go and do some study outside of his normal circle this, this spring and do some work, particularly I'd want him to do some work with some teams that have had a lot of success and short yardage. So I would, I would want my staff and I would go if I could myself, but I'd want my offensive staff, whoever that is going to be in addition to Longo, I would want them to go outside of the normal circle to a team that has, that runs, you know, that's had a lot of success on, on, in short yardage and in, in, in the red zone, tight zone stuff, and just study one or two of them, study with one or two of those staffs as, as an off, as an off season project, and then come back and discuss how that can affect what you do next year. Because I think Longo is a good coordinator who obviously has had a lot of success at Carolina. And I think the next step for this offense is to just improve it's overall philosophy and consistency in those couple areas. And if they're able to do that, and some of that comes down to how they're, how the offensive line is, is performing. If they're able to do that, then all of a sudden, I think most of the complaints about Longo that anybody has and a large number of those are, are gone. Uh, and, you know, a lot of those are unjust otherwise. So I think, you know, that, that fixes that. And then with Bateman, I think you just have to do some self-scouting and figure out, what is it? Where, where are we getting some of the mistakes that we're getting and what can we do to, to amend that? And I think they need to, you know, look at some of what they're doing tackling wise. I know they've got, you know, some specific drills and so on that many of which I like that they do, but you gotta, you gotta make sure you can get your defense to get guys on the ground a little bit more consistently when they get their hands on. So that's angles and tackling. And, and that really is just going back to fundamentals because that's really where they had a lot of the biggest problems early in the year is just fundamentals and, you know, getting guys on the ground. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think making a coordinator change makes much sense for Carolina for a lot of the reasons that, that Greg mentioned. And, but I do think I, I agree with, with you, Greg, that we could have, I don't know if it would be a productive conversation, but it would be, or a fun conversation, but it would be a conversation. It, it about, would not be a debate. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think it would be a debate about the offensive line uh, situation in terms of, of the position coach there with, with, with Cyril's. And, uh, and, you know, there are a couple other positions that I would like to see 
show some some more uh, technique development than what I've seen. And I, I would want to self self evaluate that as uh, if I were Mac, I'd be looking at a few of the, the position coaching situations more than I would be looking anywhere else. I know yeah. we want to get out of here, but how does recruiting affect position coach changes with guys you're bringing in? Don't make those position coach changes until after <laughs> December 15th. Yeah. I mean, cool. <laughs> Just wonder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Tommy, talking about Longo and, and the red zone, uh, North Carolina this year was eighth in the ACC in, in red zone touchdown percentage. They were ninth in number of touchdowns scored in the red zone. Um, so that's four out of five years at the power five level where Longo's red zone touchdown percentage has been pretty low. Last year, of course, it was sky high and you got guys like Javante and Carter. Makes a makes a big difference, but that, so, yeah, that uh, that's certainly an area that needs to improve. Yeah, and and so they're eighth and ninth in those two stats. Where'd Carolina finish in the standings in the ACC? Tenth. Here's my deal with the coaching: figure out the game management side of it, and you add two or three, one, two or three wins per season. I think if they can figure out that portion of it, I think it would be a successful off season. Yeah. Can I, can I say something about that real quick, Tommy? Yeah. you going to come of, at me or are you going to agree with no, me? I'm not going to come out. Come <laughs> at you I've got a mute button. I got to get gotten ready. A, I've gotten a lot of questions <laughs> about why we haven't asked difficult questions about the game management process. It's because we know the answer. <laughs> right. When Mac Brown has historically had some issues with game management. So what did he do when he came back to North Carolina? He decided to get into analytics, which I'm a big fan of. Yay. Analytics. Right. And he brought in somebody that he trusted in Sparky Woods to help him on the sideline. Whether now is it working? I, yeah. <laughs> No, but the fact that, that he's, he's gone heavy on analytics and he's, he's brought somebody in for that specific reason that he trusts shows that he's tried to make adjustments and tried to get better in that area. Um, I, I, I really believe that because North Carolina has played so many close games over the last three years, that this seems like a bigger ordeal than maybe it is. I mean, you know, Les miles was, was notorious for making bad decisions Mac has made some bad decisions for sure. Uh, but a lot of this stuff is spur of the moment. And, uh, you know, what game was it uh, where he, he disagreed? Was it Pittsburgh? Yes, yeah, Pittsburgh, yeah. where they kicked the field goal. And uh, I can't he, believe they don't have a weatherman on staff. I mean, what the hell were right, they doing? Like, you know, <laughs> so I give him a little bit of a pass on a lot of that because it's not like he's just being – ignorant and saying, ah, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like, like he's got a plan in place and it's a good plan. Uh, it just hasn't played out as, as well as anybody would have hoped. And, and I think he's made three more years, good. three years, but I I'll, I'll say this. And I'm, and again, I'm <laughs> going to get creamed for this too. I think he's made more good decisions in this area than bad decisions since he arrived, which is not what I expect, but what I expected based on his, his uh his his career as a commentator by the way tommy you remember me uh when we were talking about the possibility of of mac being hired as a as a head coach again and my one of my first things was well he'll recruit well but if he's making decisions anything like what he does as a commentator oh that's brutal <laughs> and yet he then went 
full analytics and has gone back on a lot of the criticisms that he made as a commentator, which shows that he's, like you said, Greg, he's willing to go against his own gut and his own nature on this to try to, to try to chase what's actually best, you know, having self-scouted on that. And, you know, you think about the first two years, how many close games did they win? They won a disproportionate number of single score games. And I think one of the reasons for that was that he frequently was doing things like going forward on fourth down early in games on fourth, on fourth, fourth and short, or, you know, making the right decision of trying to go for it on, on fourth and goal from like the two yard line, instead of kicking the short field goal, doing these sorts of things that were not what he would have done based on his commentator career, but making correct decisions on a lot of those things, many of which are immediately the things that everybody jumps to if they fail, jumps on if they fail, but they're actually the right decision. And you're going to win more often than not if you make those right decisions. The, the results are going to be more, you know, more positive than they would have been had you made the wrong decision as a rule. But then there are the other cases where I think he has made some bad decisions. I think in some cases he's followed analytics without fully understanding how, you know, the impact of his roster on some of these things. Like, well, this is what the analytics would suggest, but this player can't do that. <laughs> or we, we're, we, we're just not good enough at that to, to follow the number there. So it's going to take a little bit more adjusting, but I, I mean, I agree. I think he's tried to make a lot of those, those uh, decisions. And if you ask him those hard questions, he's just going to be like, look, we're trying to do the best thing based on what, you know, a lot of data and experience shows are the best things. And if they don't work well, <laughs> that's ball. My thing's always been, why don't you ask the hard questions? And within what question would you ask? And it's like, uh, well, why haven't you fired uh, such and such? Well, yeah. my, my thing is this, and somebody posted in the chat, Mac can self-reflect and evolve. He's shown that. If I'm thinking back to Mac 1.0, I'm remembering Texas and the Sun Bowl. Oh. Carolina played. They gave up. I think they lost to Priest Holmes, 35-31 or whatever. And then the come to Jesus meeting happened with Torbush and said, this is how it's going to go down or you're going to go home. And Carolina took off after that. If folks will remember 96, 97, 98, I think we may see something similar this off season. I think the what? NC state game, if you take away the last minute and a half, which you can't do in the wins loss. But if you, if you look at Carolina's performance in that game, it was a dominant performance against a really good football team. I think if they've closed that game out, this conversation is completely different. Wrap us up, Greg. Yeah, it certainly is different. Um, North Carolina, uh, I just ran the numbers. They've completed, they've converted 60% of their fourth downs in the last three years. It's pretty good. Uh, that's, that's near the, the top of the ACC. So that, that's kind of what you want to, what you want to see. Goes, you uh, got a, a real quarterback. Well, that helps. And I had another point, Tommy, and it completely slipped my mind. So. <laughs> well, we will be able to get together and do this again. Uh, Gregory Hall, you got to help me figure out how to do all this so we can do it next week if you're not going to be around. Um, but it's always been fun. Greg, you wanted to be out in an hour. We got you out in an hour and 45 minutes. Just, yeah. you know, pretend we were in the uh, TSA line or something at RDU. And uh, – <laughs> Jason Staples, appreciate you joining. Gregory Hall, you're the man. Greg Barnes, always the man. Uh, we will be back next week. Not sure the exact day. I think maybe Thursday. We're going to transition this pod to Thursday since Carolina plays several basketball games on Tuesday nights. We'll keep running with it. 
um, we're going to keep doing it. If it works, we'll keep doing it. Um, so expect to see us again here. Greg yeah, Barnes, Gregory Hall. Yeah. If the book, if the spiral notebook says we're doing it, we're doing it. <laughs> I've been your host, Tommy Ashley sponsored by Johnny t-shirt, Johnny t-shirt.com <clears throat> folks, rate us, review us, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Get in on the action on the beat live. We're out. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.